0: This is Sound Heights Records Podcast, Session 25, and the song lyric of the day is by Marlon and Aaron Sobel. We travel through the mist, understanding the reasons we exist. Life is so demanding, following the one that's commanding. The queen is crowned, the woman dancing, sapphire rings shine from the king's mind. First in thought, last created on the sideline. Wanna climb, find the grapes for the fine wine? Not living in a fantasy, I'm just here to extend my family tree. Sound Heights Records Down <laughs> Harmonizing life and music is growing as an artist, improving as a person, gaining insight and inspiration, inspiration. In conversations with world class musicians Welcome to Sound Heights Records, this is Yisrael Aryeh, today's guest is a very unique and special individual and musician, Moshe Marlon Sobel, is a percussionist and drummer who's uh, had a pretty, pretty incredible career, has been connected to some pretty great musicians from very young age and also happens to be a music therapist that is doing really incredible work using music as a tool to get through to people who might otherwise be unreachable we discussed his experiences his early experiences as a music therapist being in the same facility as Dr. Oliver Sacks, as well known, Robin Williams played him in a great movie called Awakenings, where there were individuals with extremely advanced Parkinson's and maybe some other conditions where they were completely unresponsive to everything except music. And there was, he was, Oliver Sacks was dealing with some drug therapies, but the music played a particularly important role in reaching these people and giving them some rays of hope in what seems like otherwise hopeless situations. I had the privilege of uh, visiting Moshe where he worked a couple of years ago at a, a facility for older folks where we played music for them And it was really a a very special experience. One of the primary functions of music for people of all types in all kinds of situations, being one of healing and this idea of music therapy. I've always been intrigued by it. When I was in college at SUNY New Paltz in the jazz program, where Moshe also happens to be an adjunct professor Now, uh, I was studying music performance, composition. They also had a music therapy program there. And I actually tried out a couple of the courses, seeing what that's all about. I kind of got bogged down with the the paperwork of it. It kind of started out with, this is how much paperwork it is to be a music therapy person. But um, the reason why I kind of looked into it so strongly was because I really that connection between music and therapy, it it makes so much sense. I mean, someone who's a performer, not necessarily a music therapist, in many ways is a kind of therapist, at least the way I listen to music. I know a lot of people listen to music. Um, I was talking with Will Bernard uh, last uh, podcast episode about self-medicating with music. You know, there there are certain moods, especially those of us who are particularly, can be get kind of moody, going through things, emotional turmoil, uh, having a broad range of music to kind of prescribe to oneself for particular situations. It's a real important part of life. And as musicians, we can contribute to others' well-being by providing music that becomes part of the pantheon of things that that can be go-to, so to speak, you know, self-medication, experiences catharsis help people through difficult times help celebrate wonderful times all that and but but music therapy as a as a particular vocation i mean moshe has clearly been very successful with it he started his own organization he creates these videos and and uh, original music tracks that are being used with older populations people suffering from Dementia, Alzheimer's, I know I have mem- memories of my own grandfather, Elav Shalom, who suffered uh, towards the end of his life with Alzheimer's disease. I, I was very young, didn't know him very well, but it's obviously something very disturbing for, I know, for my, my mother um, and a lot of people, certainly my grandmother, people who who knew him when he was... Much sharper, and then to see that kind of mental decline, and to have someone like Moshe around, who's working with individuals and in, in really, was what is kind of a, a very heavy time, a very, a very heavy struggle. Obviously, not just for the older person who's experiencing that decline, but for the loved ones, people around them, and what music can do to enhance the quality of life, let alone certain uh, ways that people can improve and heal to certain degrees, whatever that's possible. But e- even just the contribution of enhancing a person's experience, of bringing you know, joy and light to somebody who otherwise might be going through something really heavy is such a, an important thing, is such an important work. And that's a, a major aspect of, of what uh, Moshe does I draw a lot of inspiration from his example. Not many people can do what he does. Um, you know, he also, I also relate to him where we've kind of been on a, a similar path musicians who've followed a, a path of observant Judaism, particularly illuminated by Hasidic thought, with families to support. Um, and I've really enjoyed spending time with Moshe over the few years that I've known him. And playing music with him, he's played with the Booker and Jazz Warriors a couple of times. Tremendous drummer and really deep musical personality. Had a great time sitting down with him and talking. This is just a short snippet of our long ongoing conversations. We've spent a couple of Shabbos together recently where we've just talked and talked about our lives and music and uh, Hasidic thought. All sorts of stuff. And we managed to ca- capture a little bit. And Shabbos, obviously, we don't record. He <laughs> um, yeah, was cool, man. He, you know, he grew up. His father was a, a really accomplished musician and uh, introduced him to Richie Havens, who they had a very close association, some other great musicians. He talks about Mose Allison, Yusuf Lateef. And others, and you know he was part of the early days of Matisiao's success went to college with a couple of previous guests of this podcast, Aaron Dugan, most recently Aaron Novizzi, uh that's really and which was the same college group with Matisiao, went was a part of that class, even though Matisiao wasn't in the music program, but Moshe uh was in the music program with Aaron and both Aarons <laughs> Aaron Novizi and Aaron Dugan. Um, some other great musicians. So before we get to the conversation, just want to, again, thank our Patreon patrons, those who support the podcast and all of our work at Sound Heights Records. You can go check that out to join them at patreon.com soundheightsrecords or just go to soundheightsrecords.com. Follow links there. There's a lot of rewards, pre-release tracks, a lot of unreleased tracks. And it's uh, the financial and also the moral, emotional support. It helps keep us going. We appreciate feedback. You can write us at soundheightsrecords at gmail.com. So here it is, without further delay, a conversation with Moshe Marlin Solon. Let's start at the beginning. Yeah. Your earliest musical influence or, or memory.
1: Well, when I was in the womb with my mother in <laughs> 1980. With your mother? <laughs> well, in sorry. When I was yeah, with my mother, right? Well well in her womb. Okay. All right, let's start this one again. <laughs> <laughs> so June 16th, 1980 was the year I was born. The date I was born to. And in 19, I would say 78 and 79, my dad was and a composer and family friend Jeffrey Kaufman, and Richie Havens were getting together this huge project called Nexus. So by the time 1980 arrived, they were performing Nexus, and and I was hearing the sounds of Nexus. And what Nexus was was Richie Havens' poetry combined with his songs, folk music. With a symphony orchestra, classical opera singer, jazz—you uh, know—musicians uh, and like this fusion, like nexus, literally meaning like an intersection, and and it was kind of an intersection of genres. So I really came into the worlds, hearing those sounds and those fusions, those worlds colliding.
0: So, but that is that a memory for you?
1: Well, it's the type of thing I remember when I heard it, like at eighteen. Um, well, and then I went to, then they performed it at like Han- Carnegie Hall, like those early years, probably like 80, 81, 82, 83. So from the womb at that time until mm. those like 83, 84, when they stopped playing it, um, were the earliest, you know. So you were familiar you were familiar with that music? Yeah.
0: Like it wasn't, yeah. so, so it, it, when they... So you would actually, there were like performances. I mean, you were, you had the music around the house. It was just something that you you actually consciously recall being aware of back then? Well, when I heard it, like again, when I was 20 years old, it
1: was like something that sounded so familiar to uh-huh. me. I was like, what is this, you know? Mm-hmm. It was like almost it was freaky, you know? It was like, I feel like I've heard this before. So, um, and that was going on. And my dad uh, taught weekly clarinet lessons, and my mom played piano. So uh, there was always live music going on in the house. So, you know, my mom. I remember her playing. uh, uh, What was uh, Mendelssohn? She was into a lot of you know uh, Fanny Mendelssohn, I believe, and uh, and Bach, and just just I'd go to sleep listening to the piano. And every week I'd hear my dad teaching clarinet lessons. Hmm. So, you know, those were the earliest, and, and then going and hearing Richie perform live. And he's seeing his foot tap, you know, and like to the beat and hearing his guitar and hearing Emil on the congas and, and um, you know, his whole band's playing.
0: Was he like a family friend? Did, would he come around the house? Do you remember, he you was at calling? my bris.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So my dad would, and Richie became friends like from 1970
0: on. So you you got to know him personally even when we very young. Like yeah. he was around a lot. Yeah. He was almost like a um, larger than life figure.
1: I guess like to me he was like the the, the version of of a of anyone close to a rebbe <laughs> in terms of like his long beard and you know just you know worldly message, you know and and talent and and clarity and his centeredness you know about you know so he was like that figure kind of so
0: how did you how did your father end up connecting with him
1: so jeffrey kaufman um who ended up doing a lot of the string arrangements of the al richie's albums um when he used string arrangements i forget which ones i don't know if it was mixed bag or the, the other one after that but him my dad and jeffrey were family friends like childhood friends they went to the same high school and everything and um jeffrey introduced my dad to richie
0: and they became lifelong friends and they they worked together over the course of, of years besides that nexus project they worked together a lot. oh yeah they, the yeah. nexus wasn't
1: the first thing they did they've mm-hmm. done many things um but that was like the that i think the Nexus project was uh a, very appealing to richie because nobody else was bringing Richie into the classical world. And my dad did, Mm. you know, so it was a challenge for him. My dad has stories about Richie being really nervous because he's like, you know, he's out of his element, you Uh know, he's not in a coffee house. He's not at a folk festival. He's not at a Woodstock. He's not, you know, he's in like a classical, you know, with with some of the greatest classically trained musicians with conductors and, and a whole etiquette and a whole, you know, so Richie loved that. to to be able to go into that world. And he did a a couple collaborations with some of my dad's composer friends. There's a woman, Michelle Akizian, who Richie, uh, she's a composer, a family friend. She lives actually in Teaneck now. And uh, she's uh, Armenian. And my dad and Richie got into the whole Armenian cause um, through Alan Hovanis, who is uh, a famous, unbelievable composer. I don't know if you're familiar, but Keith Jarrett, ended up playing Mysterious Mountain. Jaco Pastorius was a huge Hovanus. Mm. He almost had like, like anybody that wanted to have like a spiritual trip in music knew about Hovanus. Moe's mm. Allison, my, uh, my dad taught Amy Allison, Moses' daughter at Smithtown High School. So Moe's was also an early presence in my life. My dad would, there's a couple names my dad would always talk about. It was Richie, Nina Simone, Alan Hovanus. Moe's Allison, Yusuf Latif, um, uh, then there was some other class, but th- for those those names, Ornette Coleman, those names, I just were always around my life from gr- from growing up,
0: you know? Were those individuals also, many of those individuals you, you encountered?
1: Um, like I've met them all, but yeah. they, they weren't as much of a consistent presence as mm-hmm. Richie was, you right. know? Never met Nina Simone, um, but uh, Yusuf Latif I met mm-hmm. and uh, got a chance to, you know, Yusuf, my dad went to Manhattan School of Music and Yusuf was in his uh, class. I think it was a sight singing class. And my dad says how my dad used to help him with sight singing because... Mm. But this is, he was already uh, an a, a established jazz, <laughs> you know. But, um, you know, th- those are the stories. That my, my dad had an interesting angle. Like, he met people on, like, such different terms. He told me a story that the first time he met Ornette Coleman... He played like some clarinet piece that Ornette composed. And he goes to Ornette Coleman and he goes, Mr. Coleman, you're a fine composer. And, and, and he says, hey, Larry, you're mm-hmm. the first, I think he might have said white guy, but uh, the first white guy that, that called me a composer, you know. <laughs> I mean, we know Leonard Bernstein flipped on Ornette Coleman, yeah. you know, like called him a genius. But, but my dad didn't know of him as, you know, the, the, one of the 20th, 20th century's biggest jazz innovators I mean, forget the word jazz, that he, he recoined it, what do you call it? Homelotics, you know, mm-hmm. his own language with with how to improvise and stuff. So uh, so that was like that was like I was, you know, um, I, that's how, that was that's what
0: it was like going, uh, growing up. Uh, were you being I mean, were you exposed or encouraged to play like to get start getting involved at in an early age in terms of playing the music? so my my father and mother they never
1: pushed it on me but i I did have a drum a snare drum and a cymbal from like the age two and i always gravitate towards drums i like i would always be clapping or tapping and and once i told them that i wanted to study they encouraged it full full force what age so my first drum lesson let's see was with uh i feel like there was a guy named mike abbott who taught me my first lesson and then there was a guy there was two drummers on the street i grew up in in huntington uh station my neighbor across the street and down the street a guy named glenn richards was like a rock drummer you know two rock drummers so i took a couple lessons with them to and, what like like
0: five, how old were you then? like
1: fourth grade maybe fourth okay. fifth grade maybe so that that's what's that um 10 or something nine or ten right and um and then uh Let's see, by seventh grade, I started studying with a guy named Chuck Bonifonte. He was, he's a lawyer now, pretty, it's funny, you know, but uh, he, he was a great rock drummer on Long Island and he, and he, you know, um, really got me really going. And then by 10th, uh, by 10th grade, I wanted to get more into the Latin thing. Um, I was in, in ninth grade, I was in, uh, in like an Allman Brothers cover band with my friend Scotty Wattell and we played santana covers and, and i started like digging the the latin vibe so i went i looked up no then i met this is what happened there was a substitute music teacher in my high school his name was izzy Mergen, and he he came into class one day and he started playing all these different ethnic rhythms on the drum set and I got so turned on. Hmm. He was like, oh, this is like a Moroccan thing. This is a merengue mixed in with the Brazilians. And, and, and I was like, whoa, each place in the world has its own um, rhythmic twist, its own flavor, its own um, subtleties to it, and, it wasn't, and there was a world to discover. So I went into the, the Drummer's Collective. That was like the best drum school in Manhattan and and i saw there was a couple like afro cuban drummers there but there was one guy that had a cool hat on and i was like this guy looks great and that was bobby sanabria and he um, and i started studying with him and that in like 10th grade by 10th grade 10th grade i was going in once a week to the city for drum lessons all by myself you know and it, he turned me on to the utmost and by junior year I told my mom I was like mom I want to go to Africa. <laughs> and you know cuz I, I through Bobby I'm like oh that's the source of, dr- of rhythm yeah. or at least in that got to America's the West African region. So she found me a people to people student ambassador trip to um to South Africa. So I took it. It was like a 3 week student exchange and I got to you know spend time with all the the different um populations there from the the Dutch to the British to um to some local tribes uh there was i was with the kosi tribe the zulu the sota and the, the zandu i think and uh, the the leader of the the zulu tribe his name was mom pisa with a click <laughs> i remember it. it was like it's like try, trying to get people to get the hat right. you know mm-hmm. the chesed, it's like you gotta get the yeah. the click you know. <laughs> So i came back from there and just totally inspired um from that trip Uh, and what what shaped me what 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 had the biggest influence is that i saw a pure joy of the south african people in particular the people in soweto who were living in such poor circumstances really impoverished circumstances, but they were smiling, they were happy. Mm -hmm. And there was music on the streets there. There was jump roping, there was step dancing. And I went to a couple concerts and I saw that the drummers played marimba, the marimba players played drums, the drummers sang, the singers drummed, the singers uh, danced, the dancers sang, the Mm -hmm. dancers played marimba, everybody played. And Mm -hmm. there was a, a, a joy that was was not present in American uh, music uh, that, that I noticed there. And I said to myself, I want to be a musician like that. Someone that can fully be expressive, not limit himself on what instrument he wants to to play and, and ultimately communicate joy uh, and a love of life and a vitality through music. And I came home from that trip and that's when i i went to the new school and um I, you know and, you
0: were welcome there i mean that you, you were
1: yes instructed i was once personally uh, uh once when i went to south africa and shared it wasn't a musical trip it was like just a cultural exchange but once i sh- shared my love for percussion and and i played for them they flipped out on it they they loved it that i was hmm. that into you know drumming and like like i wanted to learn about you know what they're doing and you know so it was like open arms of an embrace you know um i mean maybe that was part of the student exchange that they only took us to people that were were on board with this program so they Mm. could i don't think they would reject you know like even if whatever but i i just remember it being like such a a positive experience that um so yeah and then i went to the new school um like a year after that and uh was in the afro-cuban band there with with sanabria and went. i was in a class with you know such great musicians uh, robert glasper the strickland brothers um uh you know uh, jonah david was there josh warner aaron dugan uh john lee uh aaron Navizi, uh like so many cats that right now are doing such wonderful things with with music um
0: i was like in that class you know so uh did you did you get to play much with the the Robert Glasper i
1: don't think i ever played with him (laughs) (laughs) there was sort of like uh, (laughs) there was sort of some different clip clicks going uh on at that time you know um
0: so who are the guys you mostly i know dugan you played with
1: yeah, for me it was I was mostly um hanging with like I, I remember getting pretty tight with Joe Ribsick. Um he was he's a keyboard player, organ player, a piano player. Um then John Lee and John Buck. And uh, I was in two bands in college. One was called Grandfather Ridiculous, and I was with <laughs> with yeah, with, with Joe Ribsick and I think John Buck. And then um and then I started to get we, we formed a band called Raw Scientists, which was the precursor to Caveman. And Caveman was with John Lee, Tim Kuiper, Brian Marcella, and John Buck. And you? No, oh, you I was Raw Scientists. So okay. Raw Scientists
0: was me, John Buck, and John Lee. And that was that the group that played in uh, Big Cypress? Oh, at Big
1: Cypress, um, yes, it was with Andy Cotton. So Andy Cotton was on bass. And Brian Marcella on keys, and John Lee on guitar, and me on drums. And that, what was the name of that band that was? We, we called it like the,
0: I feel like it was like the Modulators. I, I feel like that was the name at the time. Um, so I know you downplay that experience, but I, I want to hear, you know, it's a, it, it, amazing how you ended up there. I mean, you you were.
1: Kind of was. Um, yeah, I I wasn't like a huge Fish fan or anything. Mm-hmm. So I, I wasn't like starstruck from that experience. Although I did go to Fish concerts in high school, and it it was like, it was special. And when I saw that band improvise, I was like, I just, I was like, oh, I could, I, I, I was like, I want to be doing that. I don't want to be like a, I don't want to be like a fan watching them. I want to be just doing that. With you know, so, so I, I, they did. How did they find? How
0: did they find? So Andy
1: Cotton's from Vermont,
0: and I think he
1: knew Trey. Okay. From either college or some Andy, some. Andy Kahn was a new school guy. Yes, he was okay. an older guy. He was he was maybe fifteen years older than us. Um, he was probably like Trey's age, you know. Okay. At the time, you know, um, uh, so he was able to 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 get in with with him and and get this great gig, where we would play. Um, we would play whenever they weren't playing.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. You know.
1: Yeah. So it was like. And it it wasn't on their on the stage. It was like where they were sh- selling T-shirts, like where everybody was basically hanging, you know. So it was exciting because you got, you know, that we were the only other live. Well, how
0: did how did you get tapped for that? I mean, how did Andy Cotton end up He went to the New year? School. It, okay, but like, oh, he was an older student at the New School. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, he
1: was he was at he was, at the, he was studying at the, he was in our classes, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah.
0: And so so did you um, so did you interact with the guys from Fish at all?
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. meeting them, and they were like, "Hey, cool, man." They were into them. what
0: you guys were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They picked you to to play there. I mean,
1: yeah. They get they yeah I, yeah. It was cool. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was you know it was like. Uh, I mean, like at the time, I was like you know around like Reggie Workman and like these like heavy jazz cats, you know. Right. So. Um, you know, so it was it was great because it, it was like getting our, ourselves at that point. We'd play. We'd go to bars and little clubs and play for 15, 20 people. And here we're playing like for thousands and thousands of people right. at different times and- People like
0: be passing through the, the area. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, e- even though then there'd be like hundreds of people in front of us digging it and dancing and chilling. Yeah, And then there'd just be other people like thousands that were just walking
0: around and just like- So that was the biggest country you played up to that point? Really like, um, not necessarily. No, I played with R-
1: Richie Havens in 1997 at Hexter Park in Huntington, and then at, at and at a Riverfest in Albany. Uh-huh. So I that was my first like real gig, like uh-huh. uh, on congas and like in front of like. With your father also? No, nope, the... not my father. Not my father. Mm-hmm. No, nope. he was he. Uh... I mean, it was like. As much as my father's friends, were I had to, I had to really prove myself to Richie. Like, yeah. my dad's like, hey, Marlon's been really getting into the congas. Richie's like, oh, bring him in, bring him in. Mm-hmm. So I played like, you know, like some a little congas. He's like, oh, great, put him on stage, you know. Mm-hmm. And we played Here Comes the Sun, and then we played Freedom, and he liked how it sounded. So then he called me.
0: Was it just you
1: and him? It was me, him, and and uh, Dino uh, is his uh, lead guitar player. Wow um so Dino was like all right watch his foot watch his foot you know he's yeah. like because because you know his foot goes toe heel toe heel toe heel yeah that's well, famous
0: and he, in the, the Woodstock documentary they like focus oh, on yeah. his foot yeah, yeah it's <laughs> like
1: so um so it was like and then I remember like he called my he called my mom's house at the you know and he's like hey well it's Richie you know <laughs> uh, and I'm like my heart just started beating you yeah. know like you know I mean Richie was like almost it was like that was like the high it's like to to richie was like in such high esteem and in, in the way i was raised that it was almost like after that it was like where do i go from here like that was like yeah. you know but i mean the truth is i was so nervous at that albany concert like cuz i you know i had to play a whole gig and i never really did a gig before and um i remember being so nervous i was in the the back of the bus uh, I was in the front of the bus, uh, his his tour bus, and Richie was chilling, you know, talking yeah. to people. And he goes up to me. He's like, Marlon, relax. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> wow. Um you know, but um, you know, I, I was like, I needed, I wasn't ready to really be uh, a professional congero for him at that point. But mm-hmm. uh, I got my first taste of like, you know, he played a
0: whole, the whole gig, the whole thing. gig,
1: the whole gig. Wow. But you know, I, I wasn't, I was, yeah, it, whatever, it was a yeah, legitimate
0: yeah. gig, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so then, so back to Big Cypress. So you, you were, so they would. How many days was that festival? I feel like it was like three days. Two and or you three basically days. were playing any time wasn't playing, you were playing. Yeah. Like any time of day and night?
1: Yeah, no, we picked certain slots. Otherwise, okay. it would have been hours and hours, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, you mean you were given opportunity to play whenever they weren't playing? Like Basically, you know, there was, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> it was very loose and it was cool. But then you know? said
0: you were pretty, you were not You were like underwhelmed by the the fish concert itself.
1: Well, for me, I mean, it's funny. I talked to, I forgot who I talked to. Was it you that we spoke about? We yeah, yeah. You, you were like, <laughs> I, I wasn't so, um, like, there, the whole shtick of that evening was that they would jam all night long, you know? yeah so everybody's like whoa i mean imagine you know the fish fans that you know two hours in them jamming and really interacting is really exciting imagine doing that for whatever eight hours ten hours but uh you know i just i don't know if i was just tired or whatever but i, I just after an hour or two of it i, I was just like it doesn't seem like it's it's uh, so exciting. You know, it's not like you were already the, all
0: done playing by that point.
1: Oh yeah, this was yeah. already from New Year's Eve, like eleven till.
0: I mean, you weren't slotted four. to play New Year's Day or anything. Everyone was going to be gone by then.
1: Um, pr- after that, it was done. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. That was the big culmination. You yeah. Know? <laughs> you know, so I remember just going back to my tent, um, like right to the right of the stage, and just listening to them like while I was sleeping. And it was really beautiful. You know. It was nice but i i wasn't like necessarily standing in front of the concert like drooling drooling for eight hours you know
0: right 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 um
1: but it was really exciting and you know and we all it was it was great you know yeah i forget about i remember there was one time when i went down when we were driving down we went to a waffle house in like south georgia north florida and it was like me andy cotton was like a vermont hippie me like have probably a goatee and like a uh, like a jazz cap on and my friend john lee who's like irish chinese you know like kind of you know we were just northerners you know Mm -hmm. and we go in there and we're like ah, can we get a waffle you know and they're like we don't have waffles (laughs) and we were we were like fun we're like well but this is a waffle house you know (laughs) of course you have waffles you know that's the whole thing and they're like could give you a cup of coffee and before we know it like I, we got the message like they didn't want us there you know <laughs> and i remember that experience like really just like that was my first time ever experiencing any um like anti-northerners anti-foreigners anti, because mm-hmm. and it wasn't like i was overtly anything at that point you know right interesting huh? so that 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 stuck out that experience um and, and then, like, about a year right after that, I was playing at Union Square Park. I used to live right uh, above the Blue Water Grill on Union Square. Mm-hmm. And I decided to get out of the practice room because I was, like, kind of... It was just becoming, like, practicing in school was like kind of like this unhealthy vibe for me at that point. Mm-hmm. So I got out, and I was like, let me play out in Union Square and i ended up playing with uh this tuba player and we would play like when the saints go marching in and just we start to time it when people were coming up from the subway when we get a big crowd yeah and one day we made like 80 bucks in coins and yeah. we went back to my apartment we got 40 bucks each we were like this is amazing you know but i was playing and and this guy Joey Cavasino uh was like wh- uh looking at me and he had this band called the Yollop and Hounds And from that experience, I joined this this swing hip hop band that in the late 90s, there was a huge swing revival with Mm -hmm. like the Squirrel Nut Zippers, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. And, you know, I was studying jazz, so I was familiar with swing, you know, but I never really delved into that era. And for me at that time, it was the perfect time for me to join that band because it's like got back to the basics of swing as a groove. And and I got hip to Duke Ellington, you know, on a deep level, and 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 Sam Woodyard, and, and just like you know, like Crossfit, just like grooving, like swing, like jazz as groove music, you know. And that wasn't necessarily really happening at the new school. Like all the mm. drummer, they were everybody was in like this post hard bop right. era. Tony Williams, you know, uh, yeah. Elvin Jones, which is great, you know, but. Um, you know, for me, it was, it was sort of what I needed. So I, I ended up joining this band and, and playing for about the next two years. And I was two or three years, and, and I was really... We cut a couple albums together. There was this one album called New Yallopin' City, and just great players, um, guys that played with Illinois Jackette, um, and Lionel Hampton. And I got a dose of that old school bandstand, you know, uh, flavor of how everybody basically learned on the bandstand, you know?
0: Wait, but he picked you up as a swim, swing drummer from hearing you on Kungos in the Park.
1: No, I was playing drum set in the park. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I was on yeah. like, a, like a bass drum snare and like yeah. hi-hat and ride. Something really stripped down, you know?
0: Yeah. And So he heard
1: something. He, he saw. Was, he yeah. heard something there. And then there was a guy, Kenny Vietnam Boldz. He was like, I think he had some major post-traumatic stress from the war. So mm-hmm. he, he got his nickname Vietnam, Kenny Vietnam Bolds, But he was um illinois jet cats drummer as well and he was the drummer to the Alpenhounds. hounds but it was like getting a little un- unstable for him as as the main drummer so he was looking for someone else and i remember that first gig like kenny was on the the, the drums and i was on the congas and he, the, you know joey was like check out what he's doing you know so i was on yeah. congas checking out like what he was doing and then you know i ended up replacing him it was all mutual and i, I ended up kind of taking drum lessons from Kenny. He lived in Patterson, New Jersey. Um, and I would go out and I arranged with the school to give him, you know, money to teach me drums. So so I got like this, you know, that old school big band mm. drummer vibe, you know. I was also studying with a great drum teacher who actually taught Mickey Hart mm. uh, in Long Island, Charlie Perry. He was like one of the great drum instructors on Long Island. And uh, I got to study with him at the same time as Bobby. So he was teaching me the, the, the swing thing too. So uh, yeah, by between Richie, between Africa and Richie and Sanabria and 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 uh, Big Cypress and then the Yelp and Hounds, mm-hmm. that you know that led me to um, like 2002, and where I graduated the new school. And in the new school, I I uh, got involved with the Creative Arts Therapy program by Dr. Luis Montello. And it was my first uh, glimpse into music therapy. And I did a an internship in the summer of 2002 at Beth Abraham, which is on Allison Avenue in the Bronx. And if you ever saw the movie The Awakenings, yeah. it, 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 The Awakenings was about what happened at Beth Abraham. Uh-huh. So Dr. Oliver Sacks was involved and Dr. Connie Tomeno ran the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function. And I started working with... Uh, a guy there that summer, and it was such an inspiring place to be around because it was just like a place of possibility. Was Oliver Sacks at all? He was walking the halls at that there. time. He wasn't there so much, but he was very much involved. He was on the board of Connie of the I.M.N. the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function. I met him many times. Um,
0: In Awakenings, there is some music therapy portrayed there. You that know, was that them.
1: was exactly yeah. yeah. So there, that was the whole essence of Doctor Oliver's discovery besides l-dopa there was right. uh, uh the, what was it encephalitis lethargica it was the the diagnosis given to these patients and through music and the reflexes of you know and yeah. the the dopamine that he got illegally at the time you right. know is what got them out of these comatose states but but the whole the, like dr sachs was like uh a a rebbe for 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 people with neurologic disorders because he understood what the world didn't see Mm. just like a rebbe sees a neshama and sees the possibility dr sachs saw you know the person beyond this neurologic dysfunction you know you know most people get too scared by the you know um the parkinsonian symptoms and the some of the 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 outside Mm. stuff you know so um anyway, so that's what, so I started at there and and I and I said I, I wanna I wanna be doing music with people that like really need it, you know? Yeah. I, I found I found it a next next level of rewarding work and and, and and with with using music in a meaningful way. And ultimately that I got a job in oh, I did this in two thousand two I did uh an internship and then I called Doctor Tomeno I said I really like the work. Can I stay on board and just learn more? She said, "Well, actually, there's a position for in a recreation, therapeutic recreation department in White Plains. They're mm-hmm. looking for a music specialist." I was like, "Okay, I'll do that." You yeah. know, so I went up for the interview. I remember I, I, I went up as I had a bachelor degree. I wasn't certified as a music therapist, mm-hmm. but uh, it gave me the opportunity to work with people in a clinical setting.
0: That was the same place that I that I met. You. Yeah, yeah. So you've been there for a long time. 2002. Wow.
1: September 2002, I started there. And I remember, like, I didn't know really any repertoire. Like, I didn't didn't use my voice too much. I played good djembe, you know, but I didn't have (laughs) real functional piano skills. So I was really sink or swim type of person in that environment. And I remember the first time I, I went on the fifth floor, I had my djembe strapped to me. And I start just like I'm like all right, everybody's gonna just like dig this, you know. And I just start doing like boom, taku <laughs> got boom got to, And this lady comes up, wheels herself, and digs her nails into my hands, and oh, you know, and was like, it was like the must one of the most intrusive things for her to hear.
0: Yeah.
1: And I was like, whoa, I I need to create safety. I need to create context. I need to. I can't just insert yeah. this like mm-hmm. to them it was like this is barbaric, you know? Yeah, it's yeah, like first yeah. of all they're not they're not they're they're not accustomed to the culture of drumming, hand drumming. Right. You know? Second of all, they never heard anybody do this before on in their home. Imagine right. someone just going with <laughs> a, a drum in your home and like yeah. thinking, you know, it's a good thing. So that's what kind of really started me on, on the journey of like learning how to connect to people and meeting them where they're at mm. and working from that place. And I started learning songs that they recognized melodies that they recognized from you know uh you know early you know he's got the whole world in his hands, you are my sunshine, stuff that you know go deep in everybody's minds and but basically create safety. It says, okay, this guy mm-hmm. when someone recognizes a melody it's it's and you sing it to them, it's like, ah, this is home this mm-hmm. is this is safe let me i could I could open up now, yeah so that whole year from 2002 to 2003 i or or, you know i kind of stopped playing drum set and just tried to to learn melodies and and sing them and and communicate through Mm. my voice um and i started with just djembe and a simple melody and slowly i moved to the piano and started finding out what chords supported that melody? Just by ear. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't read charts. You know, I could, but I, I didn't do it that way because I wanted just to find the most simplistic form of how to su- be a supporter of something that could communicate. So the first time I learned, like the two five one, and then a turnaround, go to the sixth chord, and then go back to the two five one, and then go back to the sixth, uh, You know, to like turn around. I was like, it was like a a real revelation because. It was like, whoa, that's how it works. That's how songs sound. That's how, you know, that endings... wasn't
0: part of your new school education. It was,
1: but it wasn't DOS, it wasn't like, like, it was like as an exercise. It didn't connect mm-hmm. to me that I could actually like what that really represented mm-hmm. in supporting a melody. Mm-hmm. It was like your piano skills you pass, okay, you could do a, t- a turnaround, right? But I never did it in context of like supporting. A melody, and then seeing how that was communicated to a, to a person, mm-hmm. and how how what was the the effect on that person, mm-hmm. you know. So I remember I started learning Blue Skies, and I mean I made my own chords up that sounded good, you know. And it wasn't until later that I started like really getting better as a pianist and 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 checking out the voice leading and and the different descending chromatic stuff, and um, like I was like for like Blue Skies, I was like. D minor G d d d D minor G, mm-hmm. G, d, right. uh, G minor C d d f you know like simple right, like right. almost like a folk guy like yeah. how you would just you know and then i was like checking out like later on i was like oh it goes it's really supposed to go da <laughs> right
0: you yeah. know like it's that's much more complex yeah it's, it's more complex yeah.
1: exactly and um but that, that complex chord progression got in the way of the communication. Mm. And I find a lot of young musicians that they need to strip to the basics and, and be like, does this stuff support this melody? Does it support my communication through right. music? And if it gets in the way of it, leave it out. Go back to the simple stuff. Well,
0: the obvious question would be, let's say, just thinking about the awakening scenes with the music, that certain music with a person who um, had associations with it that otherwise they were unresponsive and they responded to certain music. So I remember there's one guy had like Jimi Hendrix, they couldn't figure out what he liked. He was like like Jimi Hendrix. But the aren't the wouldn't the chord progression be part, I would think that a chord progression, like of, of a standard like that especially, would be part of a person's association with that song or not necessarily. It was more pure melody connection. Okay, so it, and, it, and they it, they, did, they didn't miss the 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 unique the chord accompaniment that's unique to that song. They might not have it wouldn't have necessarily been part of their familiarity with it in an obvious way.
1: So um, so that's a good question. Um, I don't know if in the the awakenings it, they actually played Jimi Hendrix's original recording. I think they did. Yeah. yeah so if if that's what you're dealing like if you're dealing with like that's the intervention that the person will respond to the actual recording of it, then even if you were to play the same thing, you might not get the same as effect as that you know original recording right, but I'm really just more talking about like as a general music presence in trying to engage a group of people on how to best communicate to them and through the music without. Like for instance, like having eye contact with them. So if your your head's buried in music, right, That's right. like a you know, like you learn that real quickly. That you're not going to maximize their engagement. Um, so in terms of just like figuring out the most simplistic chords to support your melody, so you can be, uh, you know, engaging to with with your your participants is really the, the idea. And you know, mm-hmm. like it, it really doesn't matter if you have a cool voicing for a chord when you're trying to in- increase socialization, right. increase eye contact, get people. You know, uh, well, like and, I
0: get. I mean, I get it. That that the main thing is the the connection. I'm just. I was just kind of wondering, in your experience, if let's say someone has a strong connection to let's say a song like Blue Skies. Yeah. If they express like. Those chords, you know, those are chords aren't right. You know. Yeah,
1: I mean, I th- I think if it's really drastically different, yeah, um, they they would pick up on something right. like that's not how I'm used to hearing it. But the way what I'm describing is like it's like the the simpleman attempt to get to the mm-hmm. right chords, like not intentionally trying to change it. You know. Got
0: it. Got it. <laughs> so let's back, back up a little bit because cause you had mentioned to me before that your dad kind of instilled in you an idea that as a professional musician it is good to have a day gig um, that that can that you just, you don't feel like you have to get uh, just take gigs for money um, you know that you have like a steady some kind of steady thing so that was kind of in your mind when you first pursued the music therapy thing
1: um you know it was really um, the music therapy thing kind of uh fell fell i, I, I I mean, that was, I guess, subconsciously always in my mind. Like, how, how do you create a, a stable life? And, you know, my dad was always like, you got to get a job. He didn't want me to go to new school. He wanted me to go to Queens College mm-hmm. and, and sort of get some sort of educational music education degree or something that leads to some, uh, to a job. So um, I know when I found the music therapy thing, he was like, what is, like, what is it, you know? Um, but he was happy that there was a, a job. Um, and then, and I always continued playing, you know, so that was kind of something he made clear that that's what he felt, that's what success looked like mm-hmm. for him, right? you know, because he's, you know, I'm sure, you know, you know, you want to have a family, you want to be able to mm. thrive and, and, and.
0: So you had that in mind also, I mean, because it sounded like you were pretty busy out a college, like you, you were, you had a lot of gigs before you got involved in music therapy.
1: I did, and I was still in the Yallop and Hounds. That band's um, still getting in. it. Was still still when I got the music therapy job. Um, but I slowly, I was that, at that time. I started kind of searching for my own spirituality and mm. my own sense of self. And when I was at Beth Abraham, I met a fellow whose name's Jeremy, and he had a double arm amputation um, from he was a victim of an assault. And there was three themes that we discussed in our session. And one was his self-image, two was his aggression, because if he had an itch on his neck, he was dependent on a caregiver to scratch it for him. And three, he was like, why does, why did God make me survive this? And what does he want from me? And that was the first time I, I heard anybody say God with any true yearning to, to have this real relationship and like really mean it. Um, and I, he put like God in my consciousness like after that. And that year from 2002 to 2003, I was kind of discovering what God means to me and what was my relationship with God. And I, I went to like a Baptist church because I saw the, the, care, the caregivers uh, shaking tambourine like really skillfully and with, with, with soul. And I was like, wow, where'd you learn? They're like, oh, we do this at church. I was like, really? And one of the ladies like, "Do you want to come?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'll check it out." You know, and it was great. You know, I, I, but I'll tell you, every time they mentioned um, like uh, Jesus, I wasn't like something was like stop me from from engaging further.
0: So your your upbringing was kind of like a secular Jewish identity. It, yeah,
1: Reform Temple got a bar mitzvah. My I always um, my mom lit Shabbat candles and always got a challah every Friday. Mm -hmm. just like that was the thing you know yeah so I, i had a sense of um i i always believed in god i never not did not believe in god i just you know didn't after the reform bar mitzvah i i didn't have a sense of organized religion or community or anything like that so to me it wasn't about does god exist does god not exist but like what is the most expressive truest unwatered down path to god you know Mm -hmm. and at that point i was around a lot of um caribbean nurses and cnas and i saw how they sang and how they played the tambourine in my groups and how just they were toileting people and and doing like hard work Mm -hmm. but, but but their sense of faith got them through the day and i was like tuning into that in particular also this gentleman jeremy who lost both of his arms and he was trying to keep. He was struggling, but he was mm. trying to keep the faith. Mm. So that was kind of my first thing, and 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 around that time in the swing band, some of the guys in the swing band got involved with the Freemasons. So, um, you know, he, he was like, Duke Ellington was a free like all these heavy cats were like Freemasons. Yeah, I'm like, well, what's 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 the deal with these guys? You know, and there's like a lot of like bad press about them about that organization too, um, but. I I did a first and second degree Mason thing and on the second degree the I was walking around the room and and they were naming like all these Jewish um these Hebrew words and I was like whoa this seems to be because it was it was like referencing Solomon's temple and Yachin, but they would call it jakin and mm. and Boaz, you know, and it was like Boaz, you know, it was like a, mm. a, a like a non-Jewish pronunciation of, of of the the biblical you know the the names in Tanakh and 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 the Torah, and I like knew at that moment I was like I need to discover I need to re-educate myself about Judaism because there's something Judaism has something to do with all of this, mm. and I got that sense, you know. At the same time, at the nursing home, I was bringing people to like a pre-Shabbat service, and on a Friday afternoon, and I realized that I only knew like Shalom Aleichem, Mm -hmm. like I didn't even know Lekharodiy, like and I was like, whoa, I don't know, I don't really know anything Mm -hmm. about Judaism, really, you know. I was sort of like taught that you know Orthodox and Hasidim are like archaic. Mm -hmm. I don't know, like from a young age, like that's not applicable anymore. And, you know, I was kind of into like, like, sh- like shamanism, like was like cool to me and like mm-hmm. anything to do with drums and dancing was cool to me. And right. and um, so at that, so around 2003, I remember calling, I, I was like, I want to, after that, like second degree Masonic, experience and after meeting a couple of Holocaust survivors at the nursing home, and then after going to these services and realizing that I didn't know much, I was like, I gotta, I gotta check out Judaism. Mm-hmm. So I called Rochelle Miller, not, not Matt Miller's mother, Mattis Yahu's mom, because she lived in White Plains. And I was like, hey, um, Rochelle, it's mom, and we had a connection from when we were uh, kids. We would go to the Glens Falls house together And then we went to new school together. And I was like, do you think Matt, it's like, is Matt still involved with with Judaism? I remember his last year in college, he was like deep into it. She's like, oh yeah, he's like deep in it. He's like, he's going to Hadar Torah. I was like, do you think I could, um, you know, go like spend a Shabbat with him? She's like, yeah. I was like, that's all he does is try to get people to do it with him, you know? So. And so my senior year at the new school, Danny Zamir and Matt Matajahu both became involved with Judaism. And they both actually reached out to me because, you know, the the radar comes uh, once, uh, you know. And I I was, like, gigging on Friday nights and I just wasn't interested. I thought they were, like, tripping out on LSD. Like, I didn't (laughs) think it was for real, you know. So um, at that point, I spent, I went to Crown Heights and I spent the Shabbat. This was 2003 with Matajahu. And I took all the money out of my pockets and like gave myself the experience to like immerse in it and, and I loved it. I mean, after that sh- Shabbat, I realized that's what was missing in my life, and and it took me like two or three weeks after that to to figure out what that was and how do I do that this
0: again. And you spent a, a Shabbos at a dator? Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. I went to Union Mikveh. I met like all the cats yeah, there. It was yeah. like
0: funny I was around then I was I mean I was I was married at, at that point yeah yeah I was we, hanging out at the hotel but I was not been, been around on the Shabbos
1: yeah yeah so uh, <laughs> it was a really exciting and, and beautiful time um, it, really, it was really pure at that time because that was all that was really before um, Matt Matis like uh, it was even before his first album "Rise right. Shake Off the Dust you know so it was like Really, there was nothing um, distracting from really just getting involved with Yiddishkeit and and and, and having a Lebedek, real mystical experience, you know? Mm. I remember we spent Shabbos together in white plains at my apartment during this time. I was like... Just like I didn't even wear to fill in yet, like I was
0: just starting to keep. But he came from my Yeah, he uh, came yeah.
1: and he spent it with me because his parents weren't walking right. distance. Okay, so, yeah. so I remember we went to Trader Joe's. We got some pickles, some hummus, and like we just did. We were singing the gunam all day together, and we went. We walked to Young Israel, and and we just it was beautiful. It was like I remember, I felt so good. I felt so safe. I felt mm-hmm. like we were connecting on something that had nothing to do with. um any fame or fortune or money or it was just like it was so very pure yeah that that era you know and um yeah and then things you know i I remember 2003 then i started playing with matt mattis and getting involved with that scene a little bit and and as things like took off things you know it got you know less like like that that Shabbos, like in White Plains, at my apartment, eating like pickles and well, well, did, well, you, did you
0: did you start learning regularly? I mean, you were working full time, so it's not like you had that much opportunity to.
1: Yeah, so I, I never come back
0: to Crown Heights more. So like? I
1: would I would go to the Ellenville camp. Um, okay. In, in a summer, and, I, and that's that's when I met Shemtov, Israel Shemtov, yeah. and he. I remember I spent Shabbos. We had an amazing Shabbos there, mm-hmm. and we we were like beatboxing, we were dancing, we were, it was beautiful. And then on Sunday. I'm um, looking around at everybody putting on tefillin. I never saw it in my life. I never mm. saw tefillin. And Israel Shem Tov, like looked at me looking at everybody. He's like, have you ever done this before? Mm-hmm. And I was like, no. And he's like, do you have a breath? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. and I was like, yeah. Um, so he put it on me for the first time and then he like went out and got a cake and like everybody stopped their Seder and like, made a bar mitzvah party for me like they were putting me on oh. chairs it was like mm-hmm. maybe like a 45 minute detour from regular class schedules which is big when you're running a yeshiva. seder is everything you know yeah, yeah. um so so i remember that then that like took me to the next level of becoming more involved and that's when I, I, I called my dad. I was like, Dad, I wanna buy Tefillin. And he's like, Oh, I think your grandpa has Tefillin. Mm-hmm. So we took my grandpa's Tefillin into someone to check it, and it turns out it's it's not kosher anymore. So my dad bought me Tefillin and, mm. and I'm just so happy I shared that experience with him. Yeah. Um like for me, like I, I was always like at this point I was really getting into the therapy world mm. as me as a music therapist, and I was around a lot of therapists. So I had a radar on for what's healthy and what's mm-hmm. not. So I never, in those initial years, I never just left, abandoned myself and like went in. I always had a job. I always had the punch in. Mm. I, I kept a connection with my family. Um, so, you know, the flip side is like I never delved deep into it those first years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then it wasn't until 2005 where I went on birthright with Rabbi Korn. Hmm. Uh, for the first in 2004, and then I saw Maya Note there. I was like, I think I want to go to this place and and, and learn. So I, I spent. But you
0: you you were involved. I mean, you you helped that shake off the dust. You were yeah, I was on that. that album. Yeah,
1: yeah yeah, I was on two of the tracks. And um, yeah,
0: so did I mean? Did you have so? What was your sense? You you're saying that that you had this kind of pure experience, with the white, the white plains pickles. And, but then and then you it was
1: still pure when I was on right. a, a ride shake off the dust it was still like just like it was like a, almost like a friend I was like if he wanted to you know if you I was like I wanted just to keep the friendship because yeah I, I I mean I was ready to change my life to, right. to start becoming more observant and I yeah. didn't want to get. Let any music or, any, and in particular, any business get in the way
0: of that, you know. Right. For you, how were? What, what? made you think that? I mean, just well, be just
1: the... because I've been, I've been in involved with music since yeah. seventeen years old. You're aware you know, of that know?
0: thing, hap- that kind of thing happening. Oh, extra I'm hypersensitive
1: today. to it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I've seen, um, you know, I've seen a lot. And also, mm-hmm. my, you know, my dad was like always telling me about watching out for shadiness and, you know, and make sure you don't get. Um, Get get jived over. It. You don't get don't get ripped off. You know. And so
0: did you get did you get a sense that um, things were were? I mean, he obviously he from that album. Then things started kind of taking off for him. Well, yeah, and those in that
1: after. I mean, arise was kind of it was it was cool. I mean, uh, we we were still hanging out a lot, and I remember I was like the the witness at his wedding with Talia, and it was exciting. And then the second epic came on the scene um we were playing at joe's pub i remember and uh it was like that next week we were on the carson daily show and i played that with him mm. and that was like to me that was that was really exciting i mean and it was almost like you know i was like whoa this is this is going to be harder to s- sort of just keep like it's you know i was getting pulled in that direction yeah. i'm like whoa i'm like on national television you right. know it's like yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so i mean just naturally it just got so big that you know um um, but to the point where I remember I was, you know, um, they they asked, uh, J, it was J-Dub at the time, they asked me to play um, on the second album, uh, Live at Stubbs. And at that point, I saw things shifting, and I, and I knew it had to be like, it has to be very clear of a professional thing. I can't be just kind of like a friend involved with this level, because, you know, I'm going to, you know, I was just like, so I, I remember they... Um, they asked me to play and they said they'd pay for my ticket, uh, my plane ticket and feed me. But I was like, they, they, didn't, they weren't, weren't going to pay me, you know, and, yeah. and and I turned it down. Yeah. I, I, so I, I'm not on live at Stubbs. Right. And I remember, like, I was like, I'm going to Israel. I'm going to yeshiva mm-hmm. at that point. And then I went to um, my note there and, you know, tried to tried to learn, you know, as best I could and soaking as much as I could. And it was it was challenging for me because he was really blowing up, and I was so involved. And I, and like by the time you know I got there, like everybody was talking about right. him, you know, yeah. to the point where I couldn't really just leave that behind. It, it yeah. just it, it chased me, so it, it kind of got in the way of my learning a little bit. Um, and I ended up coming back after five months and trying to sort it all out. And then I ended up playing on the youth album. With him and and playing madison square garden and like you know from twenty thousand people but at that point i was i was dealing with like a lot of personal anxiety and and just like not you know feeling um like it wasn't a stable time period for for me and 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 at least with, with the modest thing at that point, it was nobody. Nobody was stable with that band. At mm. any minute, you could be there or not there, or like right. a new band or this executive. Or he comes, went through
0: personnel. Oh yeah, there yeah. was
1: litigation. It was like it was like kind of a mess, you know. Yeah. Um, with it all, and and for me, I I didn't. Um, so whatever. So after two thousand six, I, you know, realized that. I, I wanted, like, I wanted to express myself as as a uh, as a as a vocal person, as as a front man, you know. And that's when I started Shem's Disciples, and I wrote like uh, reggae and calypso songs, and played drums, and sang and front, fronted the bands. And that was the Shem's Disciples era. And uh, it was, you know, it was my brother was uh, an MC but rapping on it. I had Alan Katz on bass. Um, John Lee, I had John Lee in the initial stages. We actually played at Crown Heights here at a unity concert like um two thousand I was trying to get like you know uh relations uh good with the community you know mm-hmm. um so it was like a nice three three and a half year run with chem's disciples and then you were
0: bu- you were a book in the band you I mean you, you were doing yeah we're busy doing- yeah.
1: Um. Yeah. I mean, we played Joe's Pub. We played Bam. We played. We had some nice gigs. You know. Yeah. Um. But the main thing for me was like I, I I wanted to see if I could kind of front a band and, and be a and, and be a frontman. You know. So I. Um. That was. I mean, were
0: you right you were writing the songs for it? And, I was writing. Yeah. I was, writing. was that something you had been doing for? Or you just kind of started at that point?
1: Well, I, I was using my voice uh, in music therapy for, for all day long, you know, so okay. I was very comfortable with my singing voice, uh, but not not presenting it as like on stage, you know, that was like a new thing, a new level of, you know, so that was kind of I wanted to see if I could do that and, and I was always writing songs in college, uh-huh. I, I always wrote songs. You know,
0: like I, n- instrumental and with lyrics or instrumental mostly. and towards my
1: senior year I started writing vocals uh-huh. the more I got into therapy and yeah. my own therapy my own you know, self-discovery the more I realized the importance of articulating emotions mm-hmm. and putting a word to a feeling Yeah. And, and that's been kind of a theme of mine to be able to externalize your, 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 your world mm. is like basically the beginning of any healing when everything's just stuck inside nobody could help you that <laughs> you can't you, you know if you can't articulate what it is that you're dealing with to the best that you can like any diagnosis is is basically you have to be able to articulate what's going on and then someone diagnoses yeah. you you know you know more or less what with mental stuff you know
0: well how do you how do you see so Let's say with vocal music, I mean, vocals have their, have their own catharsis in terms of singing has its own yeah. kind of healing property of expressing. But like between expressing things in words and expressing things like in pure music, let's say that the idea of, of addressing someone's feelings through instrumental music, do you feel like that doesn't, for the most part, doesn't cut as deep in terms of being able to, what you're talking about, address, put, put words to certain feelings?
1: Yeah, I feel, well, I feel like the whole new school era was like like practicing in a room for five hours a day. Like I wasn't talking enough mm-hmm. in general. Like I wasn't having conversations like this at mm-hmm. all. I would probably, I could go through a day and be like, how many words did I say today, you know? Mm-hmm. So for me, um, the, the living in that instrumental world um, fed kind of isolation. Mm-hmm. And being able to talk and, and advocate and you know was really my, my ticket into in, into uh, hel- being healthy again, you know. Mm. So um, it depends where you're at, you know if, if you're talking a lot, you know maybe music is, is a deeper way of expressing emotions. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was it was words, putting words to hard emotions and hard thoughts to, to, to talk about. you know mm-hmm. if, you, if you're dealing with, particular uh, you know intrusive thoughts that that like might freak people out if you start talking about them so you just like you don't talk about them or you don't you know Mm -hmm. um you know it it leads to a very scary inner world that you're dealing with by yourself right and and you could be around loved ones but they don't know you're married i'm married if i don't Mm -hmm. tell my wife what i'm feeling you know Mm -hmm. even if even if like i you know it's like i love you if i don't say it you know it's it's it don't work you know yeah so so we know the power of words you know so so that was so i songwriting to me has always been in that mode of of externalizing an emotion and words and being able to communicate that the best to someone else and even when I do that it's still obscure like mm-hmm. what I'm feeling and what I'm really what my inner world is yeah but um it's c- much closer than just living in an instrumental world that's too yeah. esoteric you know
0: so so what have you been up to I and mean, since and I want to respect your time I know you're yeah you know uh, <clears throat> I have a drive ahead of you yeah so but let, let's so in terms of what you've been doing lately I know obviously you're still in music therapy you, you've you um. You're involved in Zion eighty. What some other things? It means, obviously, since Shem's disciples has been has been a little while. Yeah, so Shem's You've disciples.
1: Been... Then from there went to Zion eighty. Two thousand twelve mm-hmm. is when. So it was like a year gap of of me not doing Shem's disciples. But during that time, I recorded three songs, Nachemish uh, Gamzu, um, and the words to that are the Yitzahar. The Tzahara wanna get me down, but Nacham Ishkamzu says this is also for the good too. So it was like using, like trying to find the Nacham Ishkamzou in you mm-hmm. and, and trying to make sense of when things are hard for you, that, that's really ultimately for the good too, you know? So that was a way, and I know the bridge of that song was goes like this, the light is getting dim, it's, the light is getting dim so and i'm so weak i guess i'm too sensitive and looking too deep i just missed the cue i miss the birds of you where are you <laughs> so it's like you know this this kind of fight to find the nachamish Gamzu and you know but that was what i was dealing with at the time you know um and then i had a song called the benini and another song called sojourner like feeling like kind of a stranger in this world and like sojourning through and it basically we're we're trying to get through a certain point in my life with certain emotions that were uh were were, were very isolating and now i'm at a point let's see i have a couple of songs that i have yet to put out mm-hmm. but with those songs i know aaron dugan your, your guest last week he was on guitar and jason fraticelli was on bass when i did sojourner and mm-hmm. you know and I, I think I put it up on YouTube, but the truth is I never marketed it because it served as music therapy for me. Mm-hmm. And it was really like, I was like, oh, I just, I needed to get that part out and I got it out. I'm going to move on now.
0: Yeah. But but there, it's it's around, the people could check it out. Maybe yeah, it's YouTube. To, okay. Yeah. Um, and then, um, so Zion 80 is something you've been a lot involved, I mean, pretty involved in since.
1: Yeah, so that was that been a real... with uh john and i and 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 the bands um since 2012 and we've been playing since then and and, you know fusing the the african rhythms with jewish melodies and and all the in-between improvisation and then uh, john and i did a a project called negunum in clave where i want to sort of revisit my afro-cuban roots and and try to really get an authentic Latin flavored feel for some of the nig- nigunum you know and, and show how some of these melodies really have clave in it already yeah. you know yeah, yeah, so that's something that still has to be actualized but it's it's on the it's on the to-do list and then there's a couple other songs that I, I still have yet to 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 put out um, more in the therapeutic realm and uh, and my big thing that I'm doing right now is I started a non-for-profit and I'm doing this interactive and therapeutic TV experience for, for people in long-term healthcare settings. And I'm applying for- What's that called? That's called Kami um, Tom's is the name of the, the, um, the non-for-profit. It stands for Keep On Moving, Interactive and Therapeutically Oriented Music Services. And, uh, and we, uh, I did three episodes so far. I'm in the process of trying to obtain the rights to the songs. Um, which is uh, kind of a long a long journey but uh you know we got more episodes in the making and uh, and I, I want i ultimately want this to be um, a channel like a like a real viable channel where people tune into and feel that there's a program for seniors that is relevant to them and therapeutic and fun and it also engages their caregivers which are younger than me sometimes you have a 22 year old mm. cna from you know you know a place very different than the, the person they're caring for and w- how are they going to see eye to eye how are they mm. going to engage in a mutually uh, you know uh, beneficial program together you know like mm. you can't be in bingo land for here and someone else isn't inspired by that it's it's just a matter of time where it's going to be they're going to get burnt out and you know so that's what this television experience is trying to accomplish is is to engage someone that loves reggae and you know with someone that loves the swing era and mm. and you know
0: so you you find kind of about ba- in balancing your career as a music therapist your career as a you know as a i guess a i mean a, a performing musician yeah so you you feel like you've kind of found find a find a good balance with that you're still kind of searching for it do you do you get musical satisfaction from the therapy as well or that's a different kind of satisfaction of I like,
1: do I do get musical satisfaction from the therapy and particularly with the elderly because the 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 general songbook of them is like all oh, the the american songbook and the jazz standards which I love you know Yeah um so and I'm playing a lot of piano and marimba with with them um I also do these big drumming experiences like I don't want to say drum circles it's not really that's it's an interactive drumming program that I do for 150 people kids and campers and schools and to me that's like an orchestra to me you know i'm I'm able to be conductor for that or facilitator and so yeah I, i find like i don't uh i'm not trying to find any of the balance what i'm just trying to do is actualize um uh the music therapy thing with this with the non-for-profit I I see the potential of how big it could get Mm -hmm. and I want to make sure I I go for as big as what it can be yeah you know um and yeah because it's really intertwined with the performance you know I'm using my performing in these videos and and it's all about delivering music at the highest level you know it's it's no matter what it is it's it's about fully engaging in an experience, you know?
0: So let me, let me ask you this, so how do you think, what advice would you give to, let's say, part of musicians? musicians, in the most part, performing musicians, uh, might have a sense that their music has some benefit, like some therapeutic benefit even, even if that, that's not their official role. But often people think of music as like- It's as healing, As man, their yeah. therapy and healing. Uh-huh. Like what would be your advice to musicians to kind of actualize that aspect of their music more?
1: Well, yeah, so something that I cling to is something I learned by Dr. Luis Montello. She coined a phrase called EMI, which stands for Essential Musical Intelligence. And um, so uh, the the idea behind that is that we all have an essential musical intelligence that um, is wholesome and pure, you know? And over time, whatever as we become more self-conscious and worry about what other people think of us, we lose we get we, we get out of touch with that. And wh- how does e- EMI look like? What does essential music intelligence look like? It looks like your kid when he just gets opens a piano and just discovers it when he dances or she dances and claps to a song when he when you just start singing and that's essential intelligence that's uninhibited. So I think for all of us as musicians that, have been on a professional path of developing your craft, the best way to get involved is to let loose and dance, to start playing other instruments and approach it not as like a professional, but approach it like, just be like, this is fun to discover and play. Mm-hmm. It's like almost like a toy. Mm-hmm. It's like, and, and I, think the, I think once you can do that, then you could bring some of that um, childlike play to your craft, mm. and that's when you start seeing it from a bird's eye view and not so in you in the forest. Because mm-hmm. usually um, we're our own worst critics, mm. and but other people aren't experiencing our music the way we are when we're criticizing. So I think that's like really the first step for all musicians mm. is to get on a drum. If you're a piano, get on a drum set. If you're a drummer, get on a conga. Mm. If you're a, you know, a conga player, try to pick up a record. Just do something and and approach it without the pressure of being a professional, mm-hmm. but just as someone that wants to, to to play this thing like you're playing basketball, you know.
0: And that naturally will convey, let's say, to someone, somebody listening, they'll they'll benefit from the childlike joy of it more than, let's say, if somebody's too caught up in in their self image or their their self criticism. That's kind of what you're saying. That like,
1: the- yeah. I mean, what I what I get. Uh, thank God. What, what people say to me when they hear my music, they say we could tell you're so passionate and mm-hmm. and 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 you love what you do. They're not hearing, uh, you know, the flat nines yeah. that I'm playing. You know, they they they're, they're seeing what's what's driving it. You yeah. know, and and I think um, from my personal journey, it, it was it was really getting away from the drum set. Mm-hmm. and experiencing music outside of it and mm-hmm. that that i could come back to it and and
0: approach it from a healthy place you know that's awesome man thank you so much
1: yeah thank you
0: i know you got places to <laughs> to be but i really appreciate you know you spending time talking when you know we we'll are do this again cool thank you Mystified Of the incense offering Intense slaughtering Of the ox and lamb It's a sacrifice And you may ask Had it happened twice Then I'll say Yo, it's always been a fight
1: Israelites burn oil Make eternal light Amidst the darkness Sober roses, The sea parters. Seek the truth Each week In the pastures Overstand Outer quitty Is our target Third the pot Of sanctity Immersion by the rivers Where the banks may be Weeping willow tree, don't you weep for me Travel trails of tears, for years you see And the tears made the sea, that split for me Servant of the most high majesty His name is I will be, what I will be So I told them, took him out of slavery Music changes my moral soul Live by two laws, one is the oral code We've been under attack, living in survival mode If you understand history, that's the road we drove All the alley we walked in the valley with our feet in chains Kept singing since the beat remains Kept bringing us to new terrain And brought us to the point where we knew no pain left to fight <laughs> Six hundred thousand At the mountain Souls were wilding Jumping out Surf crowding Ride the wave Canopy King Dave Ceremonial The coat of wool Sacrament is full Embedded in the tablets Swift to do his will like a rabbit Subjugation turns to habit Rebbe captain I'm in. Make sure my dreams happen
0: that lay Yeah. Ask Desmond Deck about the Israelites yeah. Call us 67, how we physically fight And spiritually
1: take flight High, high, high up on the mountaintop Where I happened to lay my head on the rock Fell asleep at the lullaby rock Rock, 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 beat to bed Who's that over there dressed in red? Must
0: be the children that Moses led I'm now child with a kid from a dread Knew this music would lift your head If you intend to be the chief
1: Live out its scroll live out its scroll I got inside Live out its scroll From the clouds that lay From the cloud that lay
0: Thao Shem's Disciples with Chief, featuring Marlon Sobel on drums, vocals, piano and percussion. His brother Aaron Sobel co-wrote the lyrics with Marlon. Also Alan Katz on bass, John Lee on guitar, Josh Levinson on trumpet, Reese Bertrand and Curtis Smithson on vocals. As well. I want to thank Moshe Marlon Sobel for taking the time to sit down with me to record this interview. We've been talking about doing it for a little while. Hope you all enjoyed the conversation. Check out more of Moshe's work. I'll put links in the episode description, including his page as a toka percussion artist, which outlines a lot of the work he does, and his website. Um, KamiToms.com, I'll put the link to that, which is Keep On Moving TV, which is uh, (laughs) there's um, videos and music that's made for older folks that encourages them to keep moving, enhancing their lives. Um, Some really, again, incredible work that that, uh, Moshe does. Last I looked, I didn't see a donation button on his website I'll have to mention that to him but his emails there you can contact him about supporting that really important work sound heights records also doesn't have a donation button exactly of the patreon link to support us we're working on that actually getting a 501c3 status we've applied and that should be coming soon but in the meantime go to patreon.com soundheightsrecords records or soundheightsrecords.com you can check out the music I've been making over the years as Brooklyn Jazz Warriors over there too and Brooklyn Jazz Warriors we, we booked a show it's been a while um, we'll be playing Rockwood Music Hall Stage 1 October 2nd 11pm if you're in downtown or near downtown Manhattan in that time, that date that'll be Actually, the day after Rosh Hashanah. Uh, come check us out. Not sure exactly what we'll present on that date, but I'll probably know better as we get closer to it. So stay posted. Please feel free to write me with any questions, comments, or anything at all at soundheightsrecords at gmail.com. look forward to hearing from you. And as always, remember... The abundant singing and playing of music we bring about the true and complete redemption see you next time